According to the National Center for Drug Abuse, over 165 million Americans ages 12 and up are currently abusing drugs or alcohol. Of those 165 million Americans, there is a mom, dad, sister, brother, wife, husband, son, daughter, or grandparent praying and pleading that they would stop. Addiction is a subject most people don't like to talk about and is kept behind closed doors. But the Finding Hope podcast will bring light to the subject and give families that are living in shame, guilt, hopelessness, fear, worry, and anger, tools and education to find strength, peace, happiness, joy, and hope. Hello, I'm Amy LaRue, Finding Hope Coordinator for Hope is Alive Ministries and your host for this Finding Hope podcast. At Hope is Alive, our mission is to radically change the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. We do this through our intentional next level sober living homes and faith-based support groups for the loved ones of addicts called Finding Hope. So today I want to talk about what happens when our loved ones get sober. I've titled this podcast, Sober, Now What? I remember how scared I was when I first dropped my husband off at rehab. And I'll never forget the guy, his name was Minchie, and he said, looked at me just nonchalant and said, how many times has your husband been to rehab? I'm guessing I looked like a deer in the headlights. And I said, this is his only time. I didn't know much about addiction or the journey or the frequent, how many times people go to rehab and all of that. And so I remember leaving there scared. Like I just dropped my husband off at this rehab, frightening, not knowing what the future held. And then this guy asked me some question about how many times has he been to rehab? And in the back of my mind, I was like, how many times does it take for someone to go to rehab to find sobriety? And so after that, I was just as scared and nervous about him returning home. And during that time when he was at rehab, I did attend my first Finding Hope meeting. And I remember that first meeting, I realized like he didn't have to come home after rehab. There was sober living, but I still didn't understand this journey or this lifelong um, journey that we would both be on. I didn't understand that it was a disease and that recovery wasn't just for my husband, but it was for me as well. And that 30 days didn't just fix him. He wasn't magically cured from being an alcoholic. And so um, as this journey began for both of us, I have learned some things over the years, as well as talking to other people, talking to my leaders. And so recently, um, the reason I decided to do this podcast titled Sober Now What is because I've recently been talking to several Finding Hope members, reaching out to me and their loved one either is just returning home from rehab or about to, or, you know, they're home and not everything's perfect or fixed like they thought that would be. And so... I'm just going to be transparent. I don't have all the answers because I want you to know that each person's journey and experience and trauma is different. But I have 
compiled just some things that might help you along and to know what to expect. And so um, just bear with me as I go through this. And if you have questions or want some clarification, don't ever hesitate to email me um, and reach out to me and or even give me some suggestions on what you would like to hear on this podcast. So one thing I want you to think about is sober. Now what they're getting home from rehab, or maybe they just did detox. They didn't go to rehab. I want you to remember that your boundaries don't change just because they're sober. Your boundaries stay the same. They stay firm and you don't just start enabling or buying things for them, getting them that phone, getting them that car, just because they are sober. And you have to remember to continue to stay out of that cycle of codependency. It's, you, when we're in it, when they're the cycle of codependency, when they're in their active addiction, we're addicted to fixing them, getting them help and sober. And a lot of times what I see in the cycle of codependency, once the loved ones get sober and clean is we're trying to control the meetings they're going to the people they're talking to all these different things. But we have to remember to continue to step outside of that and remember that who God created you to be. I am my husband's wife. I am Shane's wife. So I, that's who God created me to be. You might be a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister. And so what does that look like? It should look the same as whether they're using or not using. And so even when they're in sobriety or have found are sober, you are not their secretary making sure they're going to meetings. You're not their counselor. You're not their sponsor. You're not their nurse. You are who God created you to be. And so you also, I also want you to know that, like I said, when I dropped my husband off and he looked at me and I was like, oh my gosh, we're spending lots of money on this one rehab. How can we afford more? That we also have to remember that even though they're sober, they're not cured. Their brain is set up different than ours and that they are going to have to work every day on their sobriety. And they have so much work to do, especially if they're coming home just from rehab. They're in this safe place and they've learned all these tools. And so now what they have to do is learn how to use these tools in the real world. So they have to go back to their job. They have to go back to family. The stress is everyday life, but what their old self did was they learned how to cope with their drug of choice, whether that was with a pill or with alcohol. And so they have to, they learned all these tools in this safe place, whether it's 30, 45, 60, or 90 days. And now they're back in the real world and have to use it. And so we also have to remember that they're on a new path of recovery, but we continue to be on a path of recovery as well. So a lot of the times they get home, I talk to, like I said, I talk to a lot of you, is they get home and their behaviors are acting very immature, right? You know they're sober, but they're acting very immature. So some of you might not realize this, and I'm not going into the brain, and I have it written down. I have some ideas for future podcast um, episodes, and one I do want to cover the brain. So this one is just going to be very surface level today. But what you might not know is if your loved one started to use at the age of 14, so a freshman in high school, if that's when they started actively using their drug of choice, their brain is stuck in that 14-year-old. 
Even if they're 25 and getting sober, their brain sees it as a 14-year-old. Or maybe they are 40 years old, but they started using at the age of 20. Well, again, their brain thinks they are 20. And so it's going to take time for it to heal. I remember learning at um, the family weekend where my husband went to rehab. They had a family weekend where you learned all these tools and learned about addiction and all the things. And something really stood out to me. It takes 12 to 24 months for their brain to actually catch up. And I and it depends on how long they've been using it. And I was like, what? Like, that's a long time. So what I would say to you is just be patient. And, you know, don't be negative to them. And just know that if they're acting like a 14-year-old, it might be because their brain is still stuck there. But it will, it can begin to heal and get back to their age. Um, and a lot of the times, it, something else I see when our loved ones start to get sober is finding hope. You stop coming to finding hope. We go when we're in that crisis mode or something. something's in the middle is going on and we need the support. But really, we need finding hope to be a part of finding hope, no matter if they're sober or not, no matter if they're two years sober, three years sober, 10 years sober, we still need it. We need it for the community. We need it for a couple of reasons. We need it. um, One is for our own healing and for our own journey and the skills, the tools I learned at finding hope, I apply it to all sorts of life, my friends and my family, my coworkers, you know, and so that, and I also need to be there for that person that comes in. For the first time, I need to be an encourager or a hope dealer we talk about. And so we need to keep going. And I've probably talked about this before on here, but my husband relapsed after five years. He was five years sober and he relapsed. And it's one of those, how could he relapse after five years, right? Well, this is a disease and he has to work his program every single day, continue to go to meetings. Well, I needed to continue to go to meetings. And I'm so grateful I was still going to meetings when this happened because I was in a healthier place through that relapse that I had a boundary set in place still at five years, what, you know, my boundary didn't change and I was able to respond and not react in that moment and not be like, you had five years of sobriety. Why did you do, you know, it's a disease that I've learned, but I had that boundary and I put it in place and, um, which, you know, I protected myself and my husband got on the path of back to the path of recovery. But I I also went to like three days later, I had a Finding Hope meeting and I went and at Finding Hope, we give a number and I was probably like a two or a three, very low because, but I was with people who understood and I left the meeting more at like a six or a seven, the meeting, the people they were supporting and praying for me. So you still need support group and people around you, no matter if your loved one is sober or not or how long they are sober. So I did go ask my leaders um, this week and a couple of years ago, because um, I've been working on this for a couple of years, and I asked my leaders what they wish they would have known 
after their loved one got sober. And so here's what, and I'm going to share some more at the end of this, but this is what one member and leader said. I had the fairy tale idea that a 90 day rehab was going to be the end of his addiction. And this leader also mentioned as well as she, um, wish she would have known the signs of relapse and known what to do in that case. And so I know we all hate to hear relapse is part of the journey. And I, and I don't like to use that terminology, you know, um, not everyone relapses, you know, but some do, because like I said, they are in the safe place for a rehab 30, 60, 90 days then they go back into reality and actually have to use these tools, right? And learn how to do it. But their brain is still in that early process of healing, right? And their brain will say, no, you know how to fix this feeling. Go use that drug or go take a drink. So I'm not going to go into a big thing of relapse today, but I will share with you some signs. So some signs um, that your loved one might be on the path of relapse and then what to do with them. So one of the signs is isolation. And we saw that when they're in their active addiction as well. They're stopped answering the phone, not sharing where they'll be, um, not talking to certain people or supportive people and not starting to not show up for work or for church or to events that they normally would do. They might be sleeping a lot um, just to avoid the reality of life and what's going on. They actually stop caring. They, their work performance starts to decrease. They don't care about seeing friends or family. Um, they don't care about other recovery-related things as well. They might be negative. Um, life is just they might have the mindset of life is just miserable and nothing can be seen in a positive light. That might be another sign of a relapse coming. They might be cutting corners, doing the bare minimum to just slip by and to get by with things. And they start the lying and the manipulating again. Not necessarily they have actually relapsed, but that's just some of these signs and then they also get into their anger, um, begins to build back up when being questioned about recovery and work life. And so we talk about, or I talk about at meetings that we as loved ones have these anchors that keep us solid on our recovery. We go to meetings, we pray, we connect with other people, we um, read the Bible, we read resources, we do all these things, we go to counseling, we take practice self-care, we have boundaries. These are what keeps us grounded. And when what happens with us is we can start to lose those anchors and then we might go back into a relapse of codependency or enabling or letting go of our boundaries. But the same thing happens to our loved ones that they are connected to these anchors to keep them in um, recovery. So it might be going to meetings. It's meeting with your sponsor. It's doing your daily reading, your meditation, your prayers, maybe counselor, meeting with your sponsor, um, exercising, um, doing these different things keeps them anchored in. Well, once we start isolating or doing these different things, 
these anchors start to pop off and it slowly begins that relapse path before long they will be in a relapse or we will be and so when you see this it's you have to come in it in a non-judgment and loving way to address them and we had a speaker at a Finding Hope meeting, and this person was in recovery herself. And I wrote it down. And this was when I was fresh and um, learning the tools. I was, you know, I was a member early on in my journey, and I wrote it down. And I tell people this a lot. You can say, I saw or I noticed. Maybe it's like, I've noticed that you just don't care about whatever that might be which leads me to believe that you are might be close to a relapse or it leads me to believe you don't care about your recovery. Maybe not those actually words. It would leads me to believe XYZ. Is that true? You know, and we don't know if they'll tell us the truth or not, but at least we're bringing it to their attention and coming at it in a non-judgmental way. <coughs> Excuse me. I also like tell people to use the I feel statements. I feel anxious or worried or um, fearful and using it when this happens or I feel anxious or fearful when I noticed this. Um, and, you know, it's more of turning it on you, how you're feeling in that moment. And so really writing it down. And it's more of before you actually approach them, this is when you need to step back and go to a meeting, talk to your hope dealer, talk to me, talk to someone through it. Because it might be um, about a, month, a few weeks ago, I talked to um, someone that was going through some of this, like they were really in their head about things. And I was able to talk through it. And bring her, and she later said thank you because she was seeing him in a different perspective than I was seeing it and being able to approach it in a more loving way. And so I also asked some of our own Hope is Alive um, residents, those who are in our sober living homes here, what they would want their people their loved ones to say to them. And one said, I have three different statements. Bring it to my attention in a loving way. I hope you see that. Um, pattern and remind me how they saw these traits when I was using drugs. So that goes back to, I noticed blah, 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 which makes me believe that you possibly could be using again because these traits were very similar. Um, is this true? I feel anxious because I feel, you know, these are the same traits I noticed when you were using drugs. You know, not, and that doesn't even ask if they're using it. It's more of, I feel anxious when you're doing this because I saw this when you were using drugs. I like that. Asking, here's what another person said, another resident, asking if there's anything that they need to talk about, not punishing me or throwing the past in my face because that would make me angry and want to use more if I had already relapsed behavior. And if they say no, you have to be respectful because they really need to be talking to their sponsor or if they're at a sober living house, their house manager or their counselor about what's going on. And another one said, another person said, approach me with open mindedness and understanding instead of accusing me. So just some things to think about. 
But I also want you to think about if you think there is a relapse or a relapse does happen, what is your boundary in that case? Like I said, my boundary was the same. We discussed it that family weekend at my husband's rehab. And then that five years later, I still had the same boundary and kept it intact. And so what is your boundary? You need to think it through. If your boundary is crossed, if there's a relapse, your boundary. But remember, these boundaries are to protect you. It's not to manipulate them. It's to protect you and your well-being physically, emotionally, spiritually. So one thing, so we talked about the relapse. And one other thing um, I want to talk about today is sober now what? And one thing is triggers. You will be triggered. Your loved one will be triggered. And so that's why it's so important that you guys are both working a recovery. And so um, one thing I, I put down on my notes to share with you is a trigger that I would have a lot. So during my husband's active addiction, I would get home from work and his, his truck would be in the driveway. And that would trigger me because it would be before he would supposed to be off work. And I wouldn't know what I was going to come home to, what I was going to walk into, where he would be. Would he be in the chair? Would he be passed out in the bed? What, what would I be walking into? And so you will be triggered by some old behaviors. That doesn't necessarily mean they have relapsed. And so what I did in this case is my counsel, I actually talked to my counselor about it, right? Talked to a safe person. And so I approached my husband and told him, your truck, when I pull in and I see your truck there, it, it takes me back to when you were actively using and I didn't know what I'd walk into. And my heart starts to race, all these things. And what he, he heard me. And so what he still does today is he'll text me. I'm coming home. I'll be home early today. Like just so I know, and I am aware of it. And it just helps me not to go into that panic mode that getting triggered right back to with that chaotic life we were living when he was active in his addiction. And so, you know, if you have those triggers, you need to write them down, talk through it with your loved one, again, in a loving way. And it might even be, you know, when you don't call me back or respond, but you also have to be respectful to them. They, they might not answer every time they might be busy. We don't, we should not expect them to answer the phone 24 seven. And, you know, it just might be like, Hey, can you at least respond within, you know, within a couple hours or before you go to bed, you know, those type of things. Um, so think about what are some of those triggers and work through that, talk through it with your finding hope people and, Talk to your loved one and come up with a plan together how you can support each other in that. But on the other side, we also have to remember we can be triggers for our loved ones as well. And we need to talk to them and maybe even say, hey, how do I trigger you? Or do I not how? Maybe say, do I trigger you? And they might want to share and they might not. And we have to be respectful of that. And the big thing is we have to be respectful to their boundaries. 
because their boundaries, especially, I mean, always, but early on in sobriety, they have some boundaries they may not share with you. And it's to protect them in their sobriety. It's not to be mean towards you. It is something they have worked through with their sponsor, program manager, counselor, and boundaries they probably talked about at rehab before coming home. And so uh, we, we talked about this a little bit in one of my holiday podcasts last year. And so go back and listen to that again if you need to. Um, and so some boundaries, they might not be ready to go to a holiday gathering, especially if there's alcohol being served. That might be very triggering to them. Or they might only be able to stay um at a holiday gathering for one or two hours and just to be respectful of that or maybe going to a restaurant. I think Jenna talked about that is going to a restaurant and um, maybe they might not want the alcohol or asking them, do you care if you drink alcohol? Do you mind if I order a drink? They might say yes and they might say no or a certain restaurant might be triggering to them or some of your words might be triggering to them. You can't get offended by it. It's just something that you need to know um, and know that they have triggers just like you and I, and though they have boundaries set up to protect them in those triggers. And speaking of boundaries, like I said earlier, we still have to have boundaries. Like I said, I had a same boundary from the day my husband got home from sober or from um, rehab to five years to now, if that was back in 2015, eight years later, my boundary is still the same. And so you just have to remember, like, what is your boundaries? It's to protect you and not manipulate your loved ones. And we have to remember that these boundaries are firm and in place. And they, you have to not change them or be manipulated by them. And, you know, sometimes boundaries can change. I will give you that. But that's something I want you to think through and pray through and talk through with somebody. Is it time for this boundary to change? And it might. But as long as you can protect yourself and keep your peace with that boundary. And so some other things that I've heard people say is we talk about let go and let God a lot while they're in active addiction, but we have to continue that mindset even when they get sober and that we have to stop and think, let go and let God, that they're going to make mistakes. They're going to trip. They're going to not go to meetings and that we have to just let God take care of them and let go of that controlling, stop controlling what meetings they're going to or how many times they're going or how many times they're meeting with their sponsor or not meeting with their sponsor or any of that. And, you know, that's hard because we can see what they're doing. But that's why I tell you guys, it, they want us going to meetings. I will not tell you how many Hope is Live residents I talk to and they like, how can I get my mom and dad to come back to a meeting? They used to go when I was in active addiction. I wish they were still going. So they want us going to meetings too. And so we have to stop controlling them. Stop, don't get back into that cycle of codependency. Step back out of it, stay out of it. And, you know, let their, you again, you're their mom maybe or their dad their wife. And so I have to stop, you know, you might have to stop controlling and, you know, let them do it on their own. Um, because they're going to be more successful. 
they're if they're living in a sober living home, which my husband did after rehab, is that was so healing, for, so refreshing for me because I got to start learning these tools, and his house kept him accountable. I they know the signs of relapse. They know the signs of someone using, where I didn't have to go in the investigation. That they got to do that with you know, that was their job meeting his sponsor, all the the counselor is the ones that will check in on him on that kind of stuff. And then also one thing my husband and I do is um, our marriage counselor right after rehab that we started to see is we have a time of check-in and it's once a week and it's, we don't do it much anymore like we used to. And it's just once a week, literally coming together, checking in. How are you doing? How are you? How, you know, talking to each other. And then I would share what I was learning at Finding Hope and at my Al-Anon meetings. And he would share what he was learning. Did he have to? No. Did I have to? No. But what happens is when you start talking about the healing that you're seeing, or sometimes I would be like, oh, at Al-Anon step four, we talked about this. Is that the same in AA? I, I was very curious, not necessarily what are you doing for step four? Step four is a fun one. Um, but more of opening that conversation for each of us in our journey. Um, so taking time to share what you're learning. But again, not having that expectation of them necessarily sharing back. But it's good for them if you feel open to share. Obviously, we don't share names or different people. What's going on with other people within Finding Hope? We're sharing what we are doing because Finding Hope is confidential and we don't go gossip about others outside of our meetings. And so we're sharing more of this topic was taught at Finding Hope. And this is what what stood out to me. And again, like I said, don't begin to enable them by buying new cars or new phones or taking them on a shopping spree, all those things. Because I see it a lot. I've heard people say, oh, I got them a car after six months. They're sober six months. I was so proud. And they needed the car. They said they said they needed the car to go to meetings or go to work or no, there's a thing called Uber now. Um, there's also usually most of them live in a house full of other men or women that will take them to meetings. And I know some residents have even bought a bicycle where they would bike to these different things. And so, but what happens is a lot of times they'll get that car and within a month they've left the sober living house and has, have cut off all communication with you and that relapse has begun again. So again, watch how you're enabling. And remember, we talked about enabling versus helping. And so going back to those tools that we've talked about with that. And I think one very important thing with the let go and let God is continuing to surrender your loved one to God each day, asking God to protect your loved one and to give your loved one strength to have another day of sober being sober but also giving you the strength to stepping out of God's way to protect him so that God can do it. So one other, a couple, I have a couple more things to talk about. And one is trust. So when they're in their active addiction, we lose all trust. And I say it all the time. We lose trust and bucket folds just like that, right? Very quick. 
And then, but we gain it back very slowly in teaspoons. My husband one time said to me, I've only been gone 30 days. And I really honestly wanted to slap him. And I was like, you've physically been gone 30 days, but you have been gone a lot longer than 30 days. And so you have to um, build that trust back. And I would tell my husband, this is me personally, it might not be you, is I didn't want to hear the word, I am sorry. I know they are sorry, and I truly believe they aren't. And then you see them go use again. And that's, again, a whole brain thing that we'll try to have an episode in the next couple months about. But I needed to see he was sorry. And that's what I told him. I said, I need to see it by your actions and not your words. And so it's okay if you don't trust them right away. And, you know, you might just have to say, this is hard for me right now, you know, through, through all your use. I'm so proud that you're working this plan and that you got sober, but right now it's hard for me to build trust you. And so we will have to work on that. And so just know that that trust can come back and it's not going to come back overnight. You lost it overnight possibly, but it's going to be a slow progress gaining it back. And one other thing is forgiveness. And to be honest, this was a hard one for me. And it took me over him having over a year of sobriety before I was actually able to forgive him. And, and I, you might be there too. And it's just hard to be honest. Like I had to, he reached one year of sobriety in that summer. I did a Bible study with two other girls and we were going to do it on one topic. And I said, no, I need to do it on the topic of forgiveness. And so that's what got me to the place, looking at forgiveness within the Bible, what it says about forgiving, forgiveness, and all of that. And so it took some time. And then I did some research. And um, so I want to tell you what forgiveness is not. So if you're struggling with forgiveness, whether they're home, sober or not, this is what I want you to hear this. Forgiveness is not pretending you are not hurt. It is okay to recognize and feel the hurt by another's behavior. Forgiveness is not condoning what the person did to you. Instead, forgiving releases the wrongdoer from the debt she owes you and releases you from the bitterness. Forgiving, forgiveness is not trusting the offender. Forgiveness does not mean you immediately allow that person back into your life or heart. Forgiveness should not be contingent on the person's repentance or if they choose to continue the same negative patterns that caused the hurt in the first place. Forgiveness is not relieving the person of the responsibility. Forgiveness is not saying the offender is off the hook. The offender is still responsible for paying off their debt. But forgiveness is giving up your rights to get even. How many times have we tried to do that? Forgiveness is choosing to stop feeding the anger and resentment toward the person who hurt you, but letting out your hurt in a positive way. Forgiveness is... 
letting all judgment toward the person who has hurt you be handled by God. That's a, I'm going to say that one again. Forgiveness is letting all judgment toward the person who has hurt you by being handled by God. Forgiveness is actually getting to the place where you can say to the person who harms you, I wish you a blessing on your life. So those are some tough things, right? Is the trust and the forgiveness. And so I'm, I want to share two more quotes I got from some members, from some some of our leaders and members of Finding Hope about sober, now what? This person said, I needed to heal from addiction just as much as my alcoholic needed to get sober. It affects more than just the alcoholic. And while he was working on him, I waited until he was sober to begin to work on myself. I wished I had begun the work long before while he was still in active addiction. I had let it paralyze me for way too long. We are celebrating his sobriety, but no, it's not a given. If there ever is a relapse, I must remember that it is not about me and continue to do what I can to support him, but also make sure to take care of myself first. That was powerful. So much wisdom in that. One other person said, this is another process that takes time. They are dealing with a lot and things won't be easy or quick. We don't have to feel bad for not trusting them yet just because they get sober, to encourage, but not micromanage, to love, but not be blind, to not walk on eggshells when we see something going against our knowledge base, just out of fear of us triggering their relapse. So I want to end with my challenge. And these are my challenge for this week. I want you sober now what? What? I want you to write down your own recovery plan. What does your own recovery plan look like? Whether your loved one is sober or not. Your recovery plan is your recovery plan, no matter if they are sober or not. Another challenge I want to leave with you is, this is a lifelong journey And you need to stay in your lane of recovery and allow them to stay in their lane of recovery. Also, just because they're sober, you don't stop going to meetings. You continue to get plugged in, stay connected, share your feelings, the ups and downs that all comes with once they, whether they're still in their addiction or whether they're sober. And finally, I want to leave you with this verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So thank you so much for joining me this week. You can learn more about Finding Hope and sign up for a meeting at findinghope.today. 
But before you go, I would love for you to give us a five-star review, share this on social media, and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next hope-filled episode. Thanks again for joining me, Amy LaRue, in this episode of Finding Hope. And remember, you are not alone. It's not your fault. And there is hope. This episode of the Finding Hope podcast was brought to you by Hope is Alive Ministries. To learn more about Hope is Alive, visit our website at hopeisalive.net. If you are in need of immediate assistance, don't wait. Call us now at 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. To find out more about Finding Hope and how you can get involved in a meeting close to you, visit findinghope.today.